gonna say you guys got a little taste of what we did for like six years. My kids would just run up while we were singing and just all the, you know, they're just, we, we would both be up singing. And so my kids, for, I mean, for the most part, like the, the members would kind of keep them corralled, but half the time they just ran up there. So um, I'm glad, thank you for being flexible. He, I saw him coming and I just thought, uh-oh, here he comes. Like there's no stopping him. He's coming all the way in. So, um. <clears throat> well, I wanted to say uh, from last week that, the, the Lord is, is so good um, in, in his kindness, but also sort of in his, uh, in his correcting. And so, like, before I even got home last week, the Lord just, like, was really clear with me. And he said, where was the gospel in your sermon? And, um, and it really was convicting to me because we talked a lot about the, the crooked path, right? And just it was, it was a really challenging message, I think, in, in that God has made a path for us that is crooked, um, and that we are, you know, that we're meant to walk it. But the Lord was just really clear. He was like, why didn't you talk about Jesus? Why didn't you talk about the gospel? Why didn't you talk about the fact that Jesus has walked that crooked path and he is, he is straightening it for us? And so um, there are weeks when I sort of put, get blinders on and I forget. Like every story in the Bible is about the gospel. Every chapter is about Jesus. Everything we talk about comes back. To the Lord, right? It's not that the Old Testament was plan A and God put, made the law and, oh, you, everybody was really bad at that. So, like, well, what are we going to do now? I guess we got to come up with a new plan, right? From the beginning, God knew that Jesus would come. And so everything, even Ecclesiastes, even in some of the darker moments, and it seems depressing, like it points us to Jesus. Um, now, I'd be a really, really bad preacher if I couldn't get us there this week. Because what did we read in verse 20? Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There it is, right? That's the truth. We're going to find our way to the gospel real quickly, real easily um, this morning. But I just wanted to let you know, if you were here last week and it felt a little bit like um, you have to do everything in order to just hopefully know that there is um there was the gospel in my heart and I just feel I feel like I needed to to make sure that you know that I, I saw it I just some somehow missed it and so um it's there and it's real and um what what a great message that Jesus has walked that crooked path for us and so um but we're not going to rehash all that right we're going to move on we're going to get to the next part um of these verses. And so each week, the last couple of weeks, we've sort of centralized on one verse and saw how everything kind of flows out of that. And that's what's going to happen. And that's what's that this morning. It's verse 20. Right? What I just read to you, that is everything from this entire, all of this comes from this idea. It all flows out of it. All the things that Solomon is talking about will be brought back to that idea that surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And what's interesting is that we all know it's true. We all say it's true, but oftentimes we don't act as if that is true. And there's two different ways in which we do that. The first one is, what is your, what is your initial gut reaction when somebody sins against you? How dare they? I don't deserve to be treated that way. We don't just say, oh, well, of course they did that thing to me. They're sinful. I'm sinful. Everybody's sinful. I don't, we, we, when we are sinned against, we sort of forget that everybody on earth is a sinner. And we look at other people and the way that they treat us, and we expect them to treat us with respect and dignity and love like 100% of the time. And when they don't, then we sort of get offended by that, right? And we're upset by the fact, by the way that people treat us. 
Now, I'm not saying that we should just always let all sin go amongst other people. Like, we should encourage and we should, we should have a conversation when somebody sins against us and, and want to, you know, seek forgiveness and seek reconciliation and all of those things. But if your initial reaction is to be offended, to be like, you should treat me better, I deserve better than this, um, remember what we have just read. Everybody is a sinner, And the second way that this manifests in our life and that we understand the verse, we say the verse, but it doesn't always manifest in the way that we act is when somebody comes to us and says, hey, I've noticed this sin in your life. What is our reaction most of the time to that? If we don't stop and think and say, what should I, how should I respond? Human instinct is that we want to get defensive. Oh, yeah, you heard, me, you heard me yelling and screaming and lose my temper, but you don't know what happened. I didn't get any sleep last night, and that's why I'm this way. Or you don't know what my kids did this morning, and that's why I'm impatient right now. And so either we, we, we try to find a list of excuses, or we justify our sin, and we don't come back to this verse. And when somebody says to us, hey, I'm noticing this sin, or I saw this sin in your life, you say, man, that's the reality, isn't it? I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I, I'm, I'm trying. The verse is, the Bible says it's clear as day here, right? And in Romans chapter 3, which is quoting the Old Testament, there's nobody righteous. Not even one. Not even me. Not you. Not anybody. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And this sort of blame shifting and trying to get our way out of it, it's not new. What happens in the very first sin? When God approaches Adam, what does he do? Does he take responsibility? Lord, I'm so sorry that I did the one thing you told me not to do. Please forgive me. No. Now, he hadn't read Ecclesiastes yet, right? Solomon hadn't been alive. But he knew in his heart he had sinned. But instead of owning it, instead of repenting, instead of asking the Lord for forgiveness, that woman you gave me, she's the one. She did it, she ate, and she gave it to me, right? Immediately has an excuse. Immediately shifts the blame off of himself onto another person. But Eve does a better job, right? So then God says, oh, Eve, why did you eat? Oh, Lord, I'm sorry, I repent. That serpent did it. He tricked me, right? And it's just immediately human nature just comes out. And from the very first sin until the sin that you committed this morning, right, we're all trying to shift the blame off of ourselves. And so we believe this verse, we say this verse, but we often don't act as if it is true. And the very first challenge this morning is to act as if this is true. That we should own our sin. And more importantly, that we should recognize that Christ has come to forgive us of the things that we have done. Right? That we don't have to wallow in guilt and self-pity when we do something wrong or we sin against another person. But that Jesus has come to bring salvation. He has forgiven us of these things. Now, you and I are weaker, right? And so when somebody sins against us, we are slower to forgive than God is. But we should follow in Christ's footsteps. And we shouldn't expect other people to forgive us the moment that we ask for it. Because the person that you sinned against is weaker than Christ. And they may not be able to do it immediately right on the spot. But that's what we're going for, right? That's what we are searching for. That's what we want. That's where we want to be. Is that when we sin, that the person we sinned against would forgive us and that we would forgive people immediately. 
And Solomon is going to tell us, look, don't forget that this is true. Because this, if you forget that this is true, your life turns into a wreck. And your life turns into a mess. And that's what he's going to tell us. And that's what he's going to expound upon. And so what he says is he makes a very confusing statement. Let's look at 16 to 18. Another thing, I wish I had included 15 with last week. 15 really actually fits really well with that crooked, um, the crooked path thing, right? The fact that we see a righteous man and he, and he dies and then the wicked man lives forever. You know, he's, he's living on, right? The crooked path is in front of us and we have no control over what's going to happen. So it fits with last week, but it also fits with this week in these weird statements that Solomon makes, right? Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, and neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Solomon just told you to not be overly righteous. What on earth does that mean? He also said don't be overly wicked. So like, I can be a little wicked, and not too righteous. Like, what is he trying to say? Like, don't, what is happening here, right? Because the rest of the Bible, when I read it, God says, Look, this is what I demand of you perfection. And we don't live up to that. And we all sin, right? And that's verse 20. But that's what Jesus tells us, right? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, what on earth is Solomon trying to tell us here? Well, the path that we walk, this crooked path that we're walking, as one of my favorite preachers always says, there's a ditch on both sides of the road, right? You can fall in either way, one way or the other. And what I think Solomon is telling us is don't be self-righteous and don't be unrighteous. Doug Wilson wrote a book about this, and this is what his response was to this statement, do not be overly righteous. He says, what does this mean? The nice Christian, the priggish Christian, the sanctimonious, the tight shoe, the pursed lips, the stickler, the insufferable, the prudish, the doctrinally correct, the know-it-all, the ostentatious, the quiet time every day or I will go to hell, conceited, orthodox, unchristian Christian. We say the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and so we abstain from tobacco. He's just giving an example here, right? Paul said that he was talking only about sexual immorality. And we go on to add what he was not talking about, and we add any other sin. But we still feel smoking must be ungodly, and so we stick to our guns. Christ said not to pray in order to be seen by men. We organize prayer meetings on the Capitol steps in hopes that CBS will cover it. We say that alcohol must be sin because some frantic women in the 19th century decided it was. The Lord made 160 gallons of the best wine at a party. Those are quotes from, this is a Presbyterian, right? Of course, he's, he's all about it. I've been a Baptist my entire life, right? I understand the weirdness that the Baptist church has around alcohol. I don't understand it, but I grew up in it. I worked at many churches as a youth minister in Texas. When I got hired, I signed a piece of paper that said I was not allowed to drink alcohol in public. I couldn't go to Chili's with my family and have a margarita because somebody at the church might see me. Like, Baptist, what are we doing? 
The, the Bible says that the Lord made wine to make, the, make man's heart glad. He also tells us not to get drunk, right? But we have, there's, what, I mean, we have this thing, right, where we have made up rules, and we shouldn't. The Bible gives us our declarations of what is good and what is bad. Now, I've been Baptist my whole life, and I still am, because I think Baptists have got the majority of it correct, right? I love the Presbyterians, but they're baptizing babies. Like, come on, you got to show me. Every time I've asked a Presbyterian, they open the Westminster Confession. I'm like, dude, you can't, you can't open the Westminster Confession to prove something to me from the Bible. you got to open the Bible and show it to me. And they can't do it, and they won't do it. They don't know how to do it because it's not there, right? And so, like... We, we have a, a couple of goofy things too, right? But the point that Solomon is making, you cannot be self-righteous. The overly righteous, that's what he's talking about. We should not be making up our own rules. No drinking, no dancing. Those are not biblical. In fact, those are antithetical to the Bible. And yet Baptists have embraced this for a long, long time. But we shouldn't. Right? I can say these now. I'm not your pastor. Colby might get in trouble later. I don't know. Whatever. But like, we shouldn't make up our own rules, right? It doesn't matter if it's Baptist history. We should be going by the Bible. Self-righteousness is not okay. We can't just say, oh, if you do this one thing, you're going to hell. Anybody, if you make that statement, and the, the only thing that fits in that statement is, if you are rejecting Jesus, you will go to hell. Anything beyond that. And it's a new rule. It's a made-up rule. It's not something. It's self-righteousness. It's legalism, whatever you want to call it. The Bible guides us. We don't need to make up more rules. There's enough of them in there, and they're hard enough to follow on its own. Solomon is telling us, don't be overly righteous. Look over at Luke 15 with me. There's this famous story. It's the story of the prodigal son. Now, how many of you, when you want to go and remember this story, you start Luke 15, verse 11? Do you think that Jesus was just, see, there's two parables right before it. Do you think Jesus was just picking things out of a hat like, oh, now I'm going to tell this story. And then completely randomly, now I'm going to tell this next story. And then completely randomly, now I'm going to tell the next story. You see, we know the parable of the prodigal son really well. And we know the other two right before it, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. But how many of you think of these as one unit, right? That Jesus is saying, he's telling a story and he's including all three of them to make a point. My next question is, how many of you read the prodigal son and you think it's all about the younger son who ran off and did all this sin and he's brought back and oh, it's the love of God. And that's, all of that is true. That God loves us and he brings us back into his home when we're willing to repent. But there's something else going on here. Start at verse 1 with me and let's read. It's basically the whole chapter. But let's read it because this is important. Because Jesus is giving us parables to explain what Solomon has just told us. Don't be overly righteous and don't be unrighteous. And Jesus tells these stories. Now, verse 1 is extremely important. We don't think about it very much. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. That's the reason that Jesus tells the stories. The Pharisees, right? They're mad that Jesus has found sinners, sick people who need a doctor, and he's the doctor, and he's going to try and help them. And the Pharisees are like, What are you doing? 
Why are you talking to those filthy, unclean people? They don't deserve to even be spoken to. And Jesus sees this attitude and he says, all right, let me tell you some stories. So he told this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, if he had stopped there, the Pharisees would have been like, oh, amen, right? No good shepherd allows a sheep to wander off and doesn't go and get them. Praise God. One percent of that man's wealth was gone, but they went, he found it, he brought it back. And then Jesus sort of ups the ante, right? Not just one percent, but now the woman has lost ten percent of her wealth. And she finds the coin. Pharisees have got, praise God, this is great. What great news. Your possessions that you lost and your money that you lost have been brought back to you. That's a good thing. Praise God. Now we get to a story that they are not going to say praise God to, right? And he said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And, he said, and, he, and, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. And so he went, and he hired himself out as one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to the father, said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the son, but the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son who is dead and he is alive again. He was lost and now he is found and they began to celebrate. Now once again, if Jesus had ended the story there, you miss, we miss it, right? The, not the whole point, but a big portion of the point of this story hasn't been told to them yet. But you can imagine that the Pharisees are looking at this and hearing this and being like, how could he possibly forgive his son? How could he? He wished he was dead, right? To ask for his property or his inheritance is basically him telling his father, I wish you were dead. Just go ahead and give me what's mine now. And he runs off. But Jesus isn't done, right? That's not the whole story. 
Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and he drew near to the house, he heard the music and the dancing, and he called one of his servants, and he asked, what, do these, what these things meant? And the servant said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father. Here comes the self-righteousness, right? Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and now he is found. Who's at the party and who's out in the dark? The son who sinned, the unrighteous, right? The one of the two people that Solomon is warning us against. The unrighteous comes back and repents. And he's welcomed into the home and he's welcomed into the party. And the self-righteous man who thinks that he deserves his father's love because all that he did for him is left out in the dark because he's not willing to recognize who he truly is. This is what Solomon is warning us against, the unrighteous and the self-righteous, right? That's the ditch on both sides of the road. We're walking this crooked path that God has laid before us and there are multiple ways to wander off of it. And there are multiple ways to fall into sin. One is super obvious, right? The younger son, prostitutes and wasting all his money and buying all this stuff. And who knows what all he did. The one that we don't recognize quite so easily is the self-righteous one. The person who says, I come to church every week. I read my Bible every day. I pray every day. God, you owe me my salvation. Look how righteous I am in the things that I have done. If you think your good deeds, anything that you have done, has earned God's love for you, you're sorely mistaken. And the answer to this is the gospel, right? Because what Solomon is not telling us, well, just don't even worry about it. Don't be overly righteous, and don't even, you don't even really have to worry about being righteous at all. We want to be overly righteous. We want to come to church, and we want to read our Bibles and pray every day for the glory of God, not so that we can earn his love, because that's not possible. We do these things so that we can please the creator who made us, who put us into our life situation, walking down whatever path you're on. We do these things we seek righteousness for the glory of God, not for our own glory, not so that God, we can earn his love. Because if we're doing that, it doesn't work. The answer to unrighteousness and self-righteousness is the gospel, that Jesus will save you from both of those things. I don't know where you are. I don't know which way you're, you might be leaning, where you're being tempted on either side of this. But recognize, it's harder to recognize the self-righteousness, right, than the unrighteousness. We know what God's word says about a lot of things. We find ourselves tempted in that. We say, ah, I recognize that, right? God said, don't do this, I'm, I'm here. But the, the self-righteousness is, I think, where probably most of us will struggle the most. God, didn't you see what I did? Don't you see how faithful I've been? 
Don't you know how much I read my Bible? Don't you know how much I pray? Don't you know all the things that I'm doing in your name? Why is my past so crooked? Why are things so hard? You owe me something better than this, right? We've all had it. That thought has creeped into every one of our minds at one point or another in our life. Solomon is telling us, don't do that. Why? Because you're just as sinful as the other person. As any other person on the planet, every single one of us is sinful. You don't deserve it, and I don't deserve it, and God is giving us love and forgiveness as a gift. We just accept it as a gift, not because of anything that we have done. This is why Solomon goes on to say, he says, don't, what is it, 21, I think? Do not take heart all of the things that people say, lest, you're, lest you hear your servants cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. We've all done it. We've all been there, right? If you forget verse 20, if you forget or you don't allow yourself to really apply that truth, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. You will, ex- you will think that you deserve people to treat you in a way that you don't. You look over your own sin, but you are willing, ready, and willing to judge somebody for theirs. When we remember verse 20, we, don't, we hear somebody say something bad about us, and we just think, yep, I've done that too. They're sinful. I'm sinful. Like, it's, this is the world we live in. And instead of getting mad about that thing, you can go to them and share the love of Jesus, right? Or if you know that they're a Christian, you can, have, you can, you can approach it the way that Jesus has told us, right? Have that one-on-one conversation about it. Confront somebody with their sin on, the, on your own, and then if they don't listen, you bring a group. And if you don't listen, they go before the church. They ever learn, I mean, excommunication, we think of that as like a Roman Catholic word, right? Oh, you've been excommunicated from the church and somebody's got to have a call. Like, the, the idea behind excommunication from a church is that when you join the church as a member and you're sinning over and over and over again and you've gone through this process and people have come to you and implored you to stop, like, hey, this is not the way that God lives. And then you're brought before the church and the whole church says, look, we recognize this sin in your life and you still say, I don't care. Like, what, what choice does the church have but excommunication? It's not a Catholic thing. It's a church thing, right? Praise God that it doesn't happen very often. I mean, I, I, I'm glad that you guys are not having to excommunicate people week after week. But, like, that's what it is, right? It's this idea that people have sinned and we want to bring them back into the fold and we want to just show them sin, not because we have been wrong, but because God has been wrong. Now Solomon makes an interesting statement after this, right? In verse 23, through the end, he talks about all of this wisdom. But he starts on a broken foundation. Because what does he say in verse 23? All of this I have tested by wisdom. This is a bad statement here. I said, I will be wise. (laughs) How many of you have ever thought yourself pretty smart you're going to figure things out god gave me this brain i'm smart i've got some wisdom i'm going to figure out how to fix this or i'm going to figure out how to do this and solomon goes on to tell us right he has all of these schemes and he's trying to find a way now for most of us the problems in our life most people it's not affecting really anybody but you and your family probably maybe a few others Solomon is the king of Israel. 
So the things that he's trying to figure out affect like millions and millions of people. And Solomon makes a really dumb statement, right? He starts off on a premise and he says, I will be wise. And what does his wisdom bring about? The thing that he mentions, right, the, the, the example that he gives is this scheme that he's going to stop war with Israel. And how does he do that? You know about Solomon? Lots and lots of what? What did he have in his palace? Wives. He said, you know what? Syria's over there, and they got a mean face on, and they, it looks like they might come and get us. So I'm going to take a wife from the king of Syria into my home, and now we have peace because he's not going to come in here and kill his wife's husband, his new son-in-law. That won't happen. Oh, but now there's another, and there's another, and there's another. And just Solomon just is like, I am wise, and I, I know how to make peace with the world around me. Because if you know much about Israel, right, it's pretty small, pretty tiny. Syria, Egypt, all of these superpowers around him are massive. And so instead of saying, I'm going to trust in the wisdom of God, he forgets his own state, right? I mean, this is in his younger years. But he was forgetting this statement that he made to us in verse 20. He's sinful. He is not righteous. And he trusts in sinful, unrighteous wisdom to try and solve his problems. And so he comes up with these schemes. And he gets this wife from here and this wife from here and this. And he starts collecting them, right? And by the time he's done, between wives and concubines, there's over a thousand of them in his palace. That's not smart. Not only do we, just in our own human understanding, like, I mean, I love my wife and I love my family, but I can't imagine what it looks like to take care of a thousand of them, right? I have a heart enough, and that's, my, that's me, not her. Like, she's, my wife is, is like the most low-maintenance person I've ever met. So it's hard enough for me to just take care of my one wife and my one family. I can't even imagine the stress that he is under doing this. Not to mention that God said, don't do it. That should have been enough for him, right? Long, long ago, back in when God is giving the law to Moses, one of the things that he says is do not take wives from foreign nations. It's as easy as can be. There's nothing, there's nothing complicated about that. Solomon isn't just like, yeah, but just maybe this one time. He does it like 500 times. He has a scheme. He thinks he's going to fix the problems around him, and he forgot that he's unrighteous, and he forgot that he's sinful, and he said, I will be wise, instead of saying, God, I'm going to trust in your wisdom. Now, this is true for each one of us, and it's not just with this, right? He gives us this one example, right? His sexual immorality, and he, and he kind of gives us a little bit of how that sort of ruined him. Because he looks through his palace, and he's got these thousand wives and concubines, and he says, I can't trust any of them. And men, we're not doing much better. What did he say for men? For the women, he said, I can't trust any of them. They're all bad. They're all trying to get me all the time. Men, there's only one in a thousand that he found honorable within his court. 
under his own wisdom, trying to figure these things out, all he does is look up one day and realize that he is surrounded by unrighteous, sinful, sneaky, conniving people who are trying to get at him from any direction that they can. You see, he tried to use his wisdom to bring about freedom, and what it did is it constrained him. It put him in chains. And this can be said for any sin that you and I commit. And it doesn't matter how big it is, how small it is. This is what we do. This is what the devil is doing all of the time. He is lying to us, trying to tell you that what freedom looks like is you do whatever you want. Right? That's the unrighteous side. Just do whatever you want. Your parents brought you up to believe a certain set of things, and this is good and this is bad, and how many kids when they get to college just like throw that out the window? Because for them, that feels like constraint, not freedom. But what happens with many, many kids, right, who they, they, t- they get a taste of freedom, they're on their own, they're in their own apartment, and they're chained down by the sins they thought that were going to make them free. If we stand up and shake our fist at God and make that statement, I will be wise, I understand, I know how to do things, I'm the one who is in charge of my own life and I make all my own decisions, I trust in my wisdom, that's where we get in trouble. And Satan is good at it, right? He doesn't come at you both guns blazing, right? He's tricking each one of us. All the time. Every time we fall into a sin, he's whispering, ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Just this one little thing, right? It's, it's okay, this thing to hear. My favorite example of this is that David doesn't go, I mean, the, the big sin in David's life, right? How many little steps does he take and cross the line? David was supposed to be at war with his troops, but he doesn't. He stays home. Ah, it's not that big a deal. They're good. They've got generals, they've got commanders, they'll be fine. And he stays back when God's law told him not to. And then while he's there, he knows that the rest of the city is full of women, right? He knows that they know that all of the men should be gone. See, I don't, I've read and I believe it to be true that it was not common practice for women to bathe out on the roof, Right? That's, that, that doesn't seem like modesty the way God has, has given it to us. But when all the men are at war, it's a little bit different. There should be no men around. But David stayed behind. And he knew this. And instead of just saying, you know what, I'm going to stay behind and I'm just going to hole up in the castle because there's a lot of temptation going on outside and I'm just going to hunker down. You know, I think I'm going to take a stroll to the roof. I mean, I don't know about you, but when you read this, like, I, I, I'm, I'm certain that he knew what he was doing. I'm certain that he's like, maybe just a little peek, like, right, I know what's going to be happening. All the men are gone, and now the women are going to be bathing, and maybe I'll just, I'll just step up on the roof and just see what's going to happen. And just maybe I'll just, you know, it, it'll be fine. It'll just be, it's just one little thing. I might just see a little thing, but then I'll run back downstairs, and it'll, it'll be fine. And so he goes up, and he sees Bathsheba. And instead of saying, whoops, like, I, that was bad. I shouldn't have done any of this. Turn around, go home. He invites her over. I mean, just one little bitty thing after another. And this is the way that Satan lies to us, right? It's a little thing. 
He's not going to lead you into adultery all at once. You're faithful to your spouse. He's not going to be like tomorrow. He, it, it, that's not the way that he works. Right? It's just one little thing. Ah, just go to this place. You probably shouldn't go there, but just go there anyway, right? And then, oh, and you, then you see, so I'm just going to talk to this person just as a friend. I'm just going to be friendly with them. It's a woman, and that's okay. I mean, I'm just, I'm married. I can have women that are friends. By the way, men, no, you can't. You shouldn't, right? If you're a married man, you should not have women who are friends on your own. You should never hang out with another woman by yourself. That's, that's foolishness. I, I, I don't have any other way to say it, right? Um, I'm not saying that it's sin. I'm not, gonna, I'm not like doing the thing that I told you not to do earlier, right? Making a law. I don't think that God has called that sin, but I am saying that I believe that that is very foolish for us to do. Women, same thing. You shouldn't have, right? When you're married, you're joined there. Have dinner as couples. That's great. And so we just one little step after one little step after one little step. And this is how he gets us. Because in that moment, right, you say, ah, I'm free to do what I want. Yeah, of course I'm married. Of course I love my wife. But I'm free to go talk to this person, this woman by herself. And we think our freedom is real and our freedom is really reigning us. It's chaining us down. It's bringing sin into our life. And so the last thing I will say is that instead of making your own schemes, right? That's what Solomon tells us in this last section. He made schemes and it blew up in his face because he's not wise. He's unrighteous. He is sinful. And yet he tries to trust in that wisdom anyway. So instead of making your own schemes, trust in the perfect wisdom of God. In this last verse, this is really important. Let's read it together. Verse 29. See this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made us to stand tall, to represent him as his ambassador on this planet. And we allow things to weigh us down. And we allow things to drag us down to the point where we can't even move. And sometimes we find ourselves flat on our face because we are trusting in our wisdom. We are coming up with our own schemes, whether they be unrighteous or self-righteous. Right? That's, the, that's the, the thing that Solomon is saying. Both of these things lead you to the same place. You can't stand upright the way that God has made you. And when we trust in the wisdom of God alone, when we boast in Christ alone, We're able to remove any of those things. You feel tempted in one way or the other, into one ditch or the other, into unrighteousness or self-righteousness. You say, you know what? Yeah, I'm sinful and I need the grace of God. And you go to him and you just take the chain off, right? And you drop it at the foot of the cross and you can stand back up. And the next day when you do it again, you go back to the cross and you ask God for forgiveness and you take the chain off again and you drop it at the foot of the cross and you stand back up. And this is what the Christian life looks like. You're never going to arrive. You're never going to get to a place where you don't sin anymore. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to come up with some scheme out of your own wisdom to try and fix it? Or are you just going to go to Jesus and say, I trust in your wisdom? And you take it off and you give it to him and you throw it down at the foot of the cross and you can stand upright again. Because the cross is where we find our forgiveness. Jesus dying on the cross and coming back and resurrecting three days later. All of our sin goes to the cross to die. It's annihilated. 
You don't have to hold it anymore. It's not there. It's not yours. You give it to Jesus and he kills it. That's the idea, right? Jesus took all of our sin with him down into the pit. And he comes back out and he resurrects. And did he bring the sin with him out of that pit? He left it there, right? Yours, mine, everybody's. We don't deserve that. But God has given us his love and his forgiveness. And your sin and mine, it can be thrown into the pit if you trust in the wisdom of God. But if you want to trust in your own schemes, it's going to weigh you down. And it might completely flatten you and cripple you to where you can't move. You can't do anything. So I challenge you, I encourage you, don't trust in your wisdom. Don't be a fool like Solomon and stand up and say, I will be wise. Say, God is wise and I'm trusting in his wisdom. So put away your plans. Put away your wisdom. Put away the vanity of this world. Stand tall in the freedom that you can only find in Jesus. Because without that, It will. It will weigh you down. It will cripple you. You can't move. You can't function. But when you trust in his wisdom and when you take that weight off of yourself, you'll be able to stand up straight. You'll be able to move and do things and act and be in accordance with God's word and God's will. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the goodness of your word. We thank you for the goodness of your wisdom. Lord, it is so tempting for us to trust in our own, to think that we are smart enough to figure things out by ourselves, to get ourselves out of the things that we, the sins or the, the, the situation that we are in. Lord, you are calling us to something very different. You have given us a crooked road, not so that we can try and figure out a way to straighten it, but so that we can walk it. So, Lord, I ask that you would first and foremost help us to recognize when we are trusting in our own wisdom, when we come up with our own schemes to fix the things that we see are as wrong in our life, and that we would shed those things. Every time we see it, every time we recognize it, we would put it aside, and we would trust in your wisdom, that we would trust in Jesus and in the cross. It's a very simple thing, but Lord, it is so hard for us to do. We are really incapable of this on our own. And so we are grateful for the Holy Spirit that can lead us and guide us and, and point out our sin when we fall into it. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for this encouragement and this challenge that we need to regularly return to you, regularly return to the cross and lay down our own wisdom, lay down our own schemes for your wisdom and for your truth and for your path. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.